and welcome to episode 37 of Africa Past and Present, the podcast about African history, culture, and politics with your host Peter Leggi and Peter Lim. Well, 2010 is shaping up to be a promising year for the podcast and for Africa with the first World Cup ever to take place on African soil getting underway in June in South Africa. And as luck would have it, uh, I'm spending 2010 in South Africa teaching at the University of KwaZulu-Natal in Peter Maritzburg and teaching courses on the globalization of soccer and on the history of African leisure. So it's a very, very exciting year ahead for, for us. And I'll be reporting uh, from the ground, so to speak, as uh, Africa Past and Present's roving reporter on the World Cup. Uh, what else do we have in store for 2010, Peter? Yes, Peter, we'll also visit African feminisms and revisit global histories of African diasporas as well as African urban sociology and coping with AIDS in Central Africa. Just a sample of some of the exciting themes for 2010. Our special guest today is Candace Keller, Assistant Professor in the Department of Art and Art History at Michigan State University, a specialist in African art especially West African photography. With an MA and PhD from Indiana University, her research focuses on the history of photography in Africa, particularly Mali, with an emphasis on theoretical perspectives, issues of identity, globalization and flow of material culture, and the power of art and aesthetics. Dr. Keller has been involved in the year-long Mali and Michigan program on art, religion, and politics in the 21st century that has seen several fascinating exchanges of Malian and U.S. scholars and public figures from both countries. And so we welcome Candace Keller, the author of a recent dissertation at Indiana University entitled Visual Griots, Social, Political and Cultural Histories in Mali Through the Photographer's Lens. And Candace, I'm very interested in this idea of the visual uh, griot. Uh, who came up with this concept and uh, who are these visual griots in Mali, West Africa. Uh, in 1994, Malik Sidi Bey was interviewed by um, some journalists from Europe who uh, posed the question to him if he considered himself to be a visual griot. And griot, of course, is an oral historian. Um, and he thought about it for a second and then thought, yes, in fact, I would use that phrase to describe my work and my role um, in Mali, but not for the reason that the journalist supposed, which was that um, he's a recorder of history or a documentarian of history, but also because of the fact, or maybe more importantly, that he um, embellishes upon the identities of individuals and aggrandizes them so that they're more idealized than they might otherwise be. Where did Sidibe come from and uh, were there other visual griots at this time and when was he developing as a photographer? Yes, um, you could say that he's, he belongs to the second generation of uh, photographers or visual griots in um, Mali and I, and I should specify that not all photographers would consider themselves visual griots. Um, he and several in Bamako today with whom, uh, uh, whom I interviewed do, but I don't want to say that all photographers consider themselves visual griots. But, um, so the earliest 
uh, practicing in the 1930s, um, Malik Sidi Bey um, started his practice in 1962, but he came from the Wasuli region in southwestern Mali, where at a young age in elementary school, his skills as an illustrator um, were noticed by the French administration, and so he was brought to Bamako, the capital, to um, enroll in the art school, which is now called L'Institut National des Arts, or the National Art Institute. And he studied jewelry making, um, and it was, uh, he, he started in 1952 and graduated in 1955. In 1955, just before he graduated, um, Guillaume Guignard, who was a French photographer who was um, operating a studio in Bamako, uh, came to the school to look for someone to paint the interior of his, of his studio, and it was suggested to him that he work with Malik Sidibe. It was at this point that Malik Sidibe became um, familiar, really, with studio work. Um, he started working that same year for um, Guignard, Guignard uh, as a cashier. And it wasn't until a few years later that he really started to uh, learn from Guignard and also other photographers in Mali who came to the studio. Um, the practices of photography, both the darkroom and and camera manipulation. So he, he really began in 1962. On the question of the camera, there must have been impediments to the flowering of a, of a Malian school of photography, of an African school of photography, through the very uh, limitations of uh, access to technology. Yes, in fact, uh, the in the colonial period, the French administration made it, uh, you had to have a permit in order to own a camera at that time, just like you needed a permit to own a radio or a gun. And so it was difficult. Um, and on top of that, photographers who were able to um, work in laboratories like Sadie Cato worked with Pierre Garnier. Um, he they weren't always able to learn all aspects of photography. So even though he, uh, he was able to learn darkroom procedures um, through Pierre Garnier, he, he uh, wouldn't learn, for instance, how to develop film. He might learn how to print negatives, um, but not learn how to develop film so that there was also a, a need um, to always rely on these uh, established French photographers who had laboratories in town. They couldn't branch off at that timing and have their own practice separate from French photography. So uh, Pierre Garnier is probably the most famous um, with Sadie Keita apprenticed to him as well as um, uh, Muntaga Dembele who is a Malian photographer who was practicing also early in the 30s and the earliest photographer that I've found um, started in the 1920s, but not as a commercial photographer. He was working with French researchers. Um, but in the, these uh, spaces, um, yeah, people recognized early on, particularly elite members of the community recognized that they could use photography as a tool to, first of all, document, record, memorialize um, different aspects, different stages of their life, different accomplishments. Um, of their life and including the material possessions and the types of identities that they wanted to capture. Um, as time goes on, those change. So in the 1930s and 40s, you see pith helmets often, um, things associated with power and authority, 
um, uh, suits, um, things that they saw through uh, imported French and American films, um, and carrying through popular music um, in the 1960s. James Brown was popular. Um, the Beatles were popular in the 70s, Jimi Hendrix. So all of these different fashions are incorporated. Sometimes people would bring their own um, uh, material aids, and other times photographers would supply them. I think Sadie Keita had somewhere about six or seven suits available for people to choose from, as well as radios and um, uh, clocks. Um, modes of transportation. Oftentimes people were photographed with Sadie Keita's car, his, his own Peugeot. Um, bicycles too early on were a popular mode of transportation. People brought their motos into the um, studio and even cameras were something that people wanted to have their photograph taken with. So depending upon um, the time period, you know, these accoutrements would, would change. Um, What's interesting, I think, that isn't often discussed in terms of these photographs is that with independence, in terms of Malik Sidibe's photographs, let's say, um, the party photos outside of, of the studio, um, people are depicted in sort of a celebratory atmosphere, also with records, you know, with uh, imported Western fashions. Um, but in the 1960s, after 1967 in particular, when Modibo Keita's um, socialist program became more restrictive and there were curfews, you couldn't be out past um, 8 o'clock, you weren't supposed to wear short skirts if you were a woman, you weren't supposed to have an Afro hairstyle, you know, they had re-education camps for people who were out on the streets this way. Um, they still were doing this and the photographs document that they continued to engage with, with these um, activities and they continued to dress in this way and they continued to import these forbidden commodities through um, sort of, yes, uh, what would be the word for that? Underground <coughs> systems. Yeah, Underground yeah. channels. Yeah, they used, they used um, airline stewards, they used mm. uh, truck drivers, they, they found various ways through relatives and friends to import these materials and the photographers who were young also participated in these activities and once you became married you became a studio photographer and you were no longer invited out into these party contexts because you weren't you know you'd be exposed to things that the youth didn't want the elders to be exposed to and this is why photographers took on apprentices predominantly was in order to to participate in the, the party aspect it's clearly a very original uh, uh, development of the genre, and the camera, of course, is a fairly uh, set format. So how African was this photography becoming, uh, if we can use that term? Uh, and of course, uh, there were wider dimensions. It wasn't just Mali. There were mm -hmm. uh, people coming from other parts of West Africa, and you mentioned the connection with, with French uh, uh, art schools and so that also raises a second question about aesthetics and uh, if we're looking at these photographs from an aesthetic angle how do these great Malian based portrait photographers these visual griots they compare with other African photographers I'm thinking of um, people like David Goldblatt or Paul Weinberg from South Africa or the famous Kenyan photographer who works with Afropix 
Are there distinct sort of personal or regional or national styles here? Yeah, they, they are. They're not always extremely obvious, but um, I would say West, West Africa, particularly Francophone West Africa, you, you tend to see more um, ornate uh, textiles used as backdrops in studio portraiture, whereas in Anglophone West Africa and Nigeria or Ghana, much more often painted backdrops are used. In fact, painted backdrops became more popular in Mali when Ghanaian and Nigerian photographers came in the 70s um, and 80s. So, so that's one way. Um, Malik Sidibe personally um, prefers people to be jovial and s smiling in their photographs, which isn't typical. Oftentimes people prefer to hold more of a serious um, facial expression to show that um, for one thing, that they are, you know, serious adult members of society, but also to not distort their facial features, which um, smiling sometimes people think tends to do. And so in his photographs, more often you'll see people smiling, which is unusual. And Lucia, you gave a very interesting illustrated lecture at MSU Kresge Art Center with Malik Situ and entitled Visualizing Identity, the Life and Oeuvre of West African ph Photographer Tijani Situ. And here, the, you know, focus is very much on, on portraits, portrait photographs. Can you tell us a little bit more about the uh, Situ and Situ and where they fit into this story? Yes, he's a very interesting um, photographer, and in fact, that's why the title of my dissertation has histories instead of history singular in it, because there are so, such there's such variety um, in in this in this narrative, this this context in Mali. Um, Tijani Shitu is from Shaki, Nigeria, in northwest Nigeria, and he came to Mali in the 1970s, actually late 1960s. Um, after working in Ghana as a trader and different um, for political reasons and um, also business reasons he was uh, he ended up in Gao in eastern Mali where he um, apprenticed to a photographer named Jupo that's his nickname and he worked with him for five five years and then decided that he wanted to find a more uh, vibrant market and so worked his way down to Bamako where he met Malik Sidibe and Malik Sidibe suggested that he go north um, and he ended up in Mopti where he worked for 20 years as a, a photographer. He took uh, photographs of political events, he took photographs for insurance companies and the police, he was he owned a studio and took primarily portrait photographs so these photographers, um, even though they might be most internationally known for portraiture, you know, often worked in many different genres, um, advertising for local tailors, um, popular musicians, the covers of CDs, uh, the covers of tapes. Um, also video, video working with um, uh, music videos and videotaping various events. Um, so, uh, but his, his, his style, um, unlike Malik Sidibe, for example, he doesn't use highly ornate backdrops most of the time. Most of the time he just uses a plain backdrop or painted backdrops um, that he worked with uh, a local artist um, to create. Um, his, his photographs have this 
sense of monumentality that I think is quite remarkable, especially if you saw how small the studio space is within, he, within which he worked. What do you mean by monumentality? Um, for example, if you look at the, the, my, uh, my embroidered boo-boo and pretty radio uh, photograph, where it has um, an elderly, wealthy Marka man who's seated formally, uh, frontally, um, sort of in a, pyramid, in a pyramidal form uh, with a large boombox on his lap. Um, you get this sense of this grandiose space and how important this person is, and it, it feels uh, regal. But, and so he, he takes a vantage point very low to the ground, mm -hmm. uh, you know, to aggrandize the individual and also to make the most use of the space because it, it was quite small. And in the exhibition that we held um, at the Lookout Gallery in the Residential College, there was a video and that was to contextualize his work so you could see the tiny space within which he was working. And I don't know the actual dimensions, but it was you know, not much larger than most bathrooms. It's very tiny. Um, and so it's, it's impressive the, the technique that he would use in order to create these beautiful images. Um, Since we're on the issue of technique, this is really fascinating to uh, listen and, and learn about uh, kind of the hidden transcripts of photography and the, the markets that are created in, in, in this um, artistic realm and the migration of artists and so on. I'm thinking of the role of technology as well. Um, the use of black and white uh, versus color and what kind of cameras and, and lenses. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, uh, well I can tell you that most photographers prefer to work in black and white um, for a few reasons. For one is that it lasts longer in the climate in Mali with the strong sunlight and so on. Color tends to fade quickly so they prefer black and white for the longevity. Um, but they also tend to like medium formats. Although in the 1930s uh, twin lens reflex camera technology became popular internationally, it wasn't until the early 1960s that it became popularly used by professional photographers and remains uh, the uh, technology of choice for Malik Sidibe. It's, it's a larger to ratio um, size uh, negative so that if you want to create an enlarged print, you're not losing as much I information. It stays crisper, mm -hmm. it's more detail oriented, and um, so they like, they appreciate that aesthetic. And on that um, level, I will also say that glossy um, paper is preferred to matte paper, which is often used in galleries in the United States because they prefer the the crisp lines that you get with glossy paper, whereas matte paper, the way Malik Sidibe describes it, is that it's riddled with pits into which light falls and breaks the clean, fine lines. Um, uh, but yeah, so originally, uh, the earliest photographers, like Malik Sidibe, uh, Keita, excuse me, was working with a large wooden box camera, large glass plate negatives, and was printing directly with the sun um, from the glass glass negatives and didn't have an enlarger, but Pierre Garnier, um, one of the early uh, French uh, photographers to have a studio there, he would print enlargements for them if they if they needed them. Um, Muntaga Dembele created his own enlarger 
or actually, Mutaga Dembele ordered his larger when he was overseas in France um, in the military. Um, but uh, another photographer, um, Baru Kone, in Bamako created his own. He was a blacksmith, and so he made his own enlarger. And, and this was true for a lot of um, photographers. They had to use the materials that were available to them and craft things that would work, whether it was creating lighting for the studio space, enlargers, um, uh, developing system. I mean, everything that had to be very creative and still are today. Um, but uh, so black and white, um, Rolleiflex, Brownie cameras came after box cameras, was the first camera that Malik Sidibe used. Then the Rolleiflex, 35 millimeter came in the 1970s. Color became viable not until the early 1980s um, when photo laboratories started to open from um, people from Korea, later Japan, and China and also uh, Malians started to, to run these as well. Um, but today, digital photography, if you would have asked me two years ago what the viability of digital photography is for professional or non-professional photographers in Mali, I would have said it doesn't look like it's very positive. It, it looks like it's still too expensive. People need to own computers. Um, the software and everything, it, w it would be too uh, much for most people. The government switched over, the national press photographers switched over to digital uh, several years ago, but I wouldn't have thought that professional photographers would, would be able to do this, but I just went back this past summer and there's already a chain um, there's at least three labs that I know of um, that a local Malian proprietor has opened. He studied in France and came back and opened up um, digital processing labs, three of which in, in Bamako alone. And this does seem to be more and more viable now. And more photographers are switching to digital um, and even um, amateur photographers now have more options for printing their images. So it's definitely going to be changing the dynamic of photography in, in Bamako So maybe we're rapidly. seeing a slight democratization of the visual griot phenomenon. Yeah, and really that began with 35 millimeter photography, but, but certainly it's going to be changing. And when the government switched to digital and to printing more ID photos, whether it's for passports or visas, um, that took a lot of business away from studio uh, photographers and so yeah everything you know quite rapidly between technology and um, uh, aesthetic interests the the dynamic um, of photography in Mali has been changing rapidly I mean for instance women now are practicing photography which is very recent there's a school that was opened called Ecole Promo Femme which um, <coughs> has run a photography program I believe for at least six years and some of their graduates are um, working for the national press now some are working as uh, uh, ambulant uh, what they call reportage photographers others um, go sort of home to home and take portraits so you know there's a lot more young women now who are who are practicing photography this is very new one of the exciting developments uh, that we heard about uh, 
was the New York Style magazine uh, uh, article featuring Malik Sidibe, and it shows again this uh, local and global engagement, right, of, of the phenomenon that you examine. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about uh, the New York Times uh, magazine and, and, and the whole story of what happened there? Sure. Well, in terms of this aesthetic, Peter, you had asked, you know, what, what is particular about this type of photography? Well, um, Malik Sidibe and Sadie Keita's style with this ornate backdrop, whether it's um, uh, arabesque type or leaf backdrops of Sadie Keita or Malik Sidibe's stripes that have become um, popular, um, many different uh, elements of popular culture internationally have responded to this aesthetic. Um, this pattern on pattern, you know, highly um, kinetic visual imagery. So um, many pop cultural films, there's a, there's a hip hop film called Belly that references um, their work. There's Janet Jackson's video Got Till It's Gone. She references um, Sadie Keita's photographs. Um, several covers of CDs have referenced Malik Sidibe's or used Malik Sidibe's um, photographs. And recently, uh, fashion designers like Max Osterweiss of Suno as referencing um, Malik Sidibe's portraits, but often in color now. And Andreas Kokino, who's the stylist who commissioned um, Malik Sidibe to work on the New York Style Magazine project. He was he has been highly influenced by his work or impressed by by his work, um, and so the assignment was to go to Mali to work with Malik Sidibe in his studio and to to create a fashion spread using haute couture designers and ready to wear um, designs um, that Andres Coquino chose based on this 1970s aesthetic that's becoming popular again, you know, uh, fashion is always sort of nostalgic and mm. cyclical to some degree. And the photographs of Malik Sidibe were taken in the 60s and 70s, so they had this feel too. And so he felt a sense of synergy um, between the two and wanted to, you know, show Malik Sidibe's work in this contemporary um, context. And so seven, seven of these photographs made it into the spread, and it was using Malik Sidi Bey's family members, his sons, grandsons, um, uh, daughters, uh, granddaughters, um, also models with whom he's worked. More recently, he has started to create, in the 2000s, a, a series of photographs called Voodoo, which are these back view portraits that he's taken, and he's, he started working with those in the 1960s, but he's recreated them, making them for international audiences specifically. Um, and, and so those models that he's worked with, he also worked with in this setting. But I, just to take a, an aside, I think this is a really interesting aspect in terms of agency. Um, he recognized locally that there are some women who have a difficult time supporting themselves whether they're single mothers or widows. And so he started to commission them to serve as models for him for these Vue de photographs. And then when the photographs sell, he gives the women um, the proceeds 
as a way of sort of a social project. Um, and so, so again, this was an opportunity for him to incorporate those same women um, into this photo shoot to give them work, in other words. Um, so um, there are several photographs using this um, striped background that he's famous for or the plain background, um, sort of 1970s looking attire, lots of um, juxtaposed patterns. Um, the title uh, is called Prince and the Revolution, and there's a subtitle that I can't remember exactly, but, it, but it's using Prince in terms of pattern, so it's a play on word, not the musician Prince and the Revolution, although of course it's responding to that. Um, but because it was a very decontextualized project, it was just these images, mention of Malik Sidibe as the photographer, and then this sexy title, um, many people in the Africanist community were emailing me, you know, in mass saying, I know you work with Malik Sidibe, what, what do these photographs mean, you know, how, how did this project start? Um, and so it was a negotiation between the two, the two men and the magazine, um, where Malik Sidibe was paid industry um, wage, and he also wanted several 120 um, rolls of film, 120 speed rolls of film, because it's hard to get in Mali, and so it was a way for him to get a lot of materials that he uses as sort of a niche in the market. Um, and the models, they, they all got together and decided how much the women would get paid and how much the men would get paid, and the women got paid more. Um, that was determined locally. And then the women would dress um, inside the studio, the men dressed outside the studio, and then they all enjoyed performing for each other. And you know, um, sometimes uh, what was interesting for Andres Coquino, because I had the opportunity to interview him, was that what he took as sort of an African-esque style, um, Malians would be able to say, oh, that's like South Africa, or oh, this is like Senegal, or you know, it was very specific right. region. So, um, in the process, he learned a lot about um, his assumptions, I guess. Um, and so it was a great opportunity for everyone. It was a fun, fun time. But the end product does raise some questions, which for many people were, um, you know, these are, this is a country where the average um, income is $250 and these clothes are $2,000. You know, what does that say? What, you know, um, what's the relationship there, and why are people so taken with these 1970s style photographs? You know, what is it internationally that people are interested in? And uh, Jean-Luc Bamsel has written a book, um, L'Art de la Friche, where he talks about sort of neo-primitivizing um, that it, we're interested in these photographs because it's using the exotic urban African recycling Western material culture in a way that makes it fresh and contemporary. Um, so all of these elements, I think, are going on at the same, same time. And so in the work that I'm um, engaged in right now, um, trying to look at complex agency and all the different roles of all the um, actors, the stylist, the models, the photographer, um, 
the magazine and how everyone's vying for um, you know particular agendas and how it works together and how to make sense of all of this especially when it's so decontextualized. So many interesting and exciting cultural developments as always out of Africa. Thanks so much Candace for talking to Africa past and present. Well, thank you for having me. Africa Past and Present is produced by Matrix, the Center for Humane Arts, Letters, and Social Sciences Online at Michigan State University. Our producer is Scott Pennington. Technical assistance is provided by Alicia Scheel and the Matrix staff. For more information about this and other episodes, and to subscribe to the podcast, you can visit our website at afripod, that's A-F-R-I-P-O-D, dot A-O-D-L dot O-R-G. Africa Past and Present is also available on iTunes, and other podcatcher sites. To get in touch with us, send us email at africa.podcast at matrix.msu.edu. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.